Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us and we're very thankful for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, who are disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. In John 13 and verse 35, Jesus declares that by this men will know if you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, the Apostle John so eloquently demonstrates the great power and value of love and all of that passage is intended for the Christian to understand that he must love one another, to love his fellow Christians. The love the Christians are to have for enemies, Matthew 5, verse 44, is very counterintuitive and always countercultural. Now, at least in theory, people can get behind the idea that we should love everybody. But we see a continual emphasis in the New Testament on this command, not just to love everybody, but specifically that emphasis of John 13.35 and of 1 John 4, the importance of loving one another. And this emphasis is very pronounced in Peter's first letter. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, chapter 2 and verse 17, and chapter 4 and verse 8, Peter insists upon loving one another, to love the brotherhood. And we're going to spend some time in our conversation today considering from the text of 1 Peter why this love is so important and its relationship to the overall theme of that letter. We see this mentioned first in 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, where Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This verse does not exist in, in, in isolation. Uh, in fact, it flows very consistently with everything else that Peter has been talking about. He begins his letter by saying he's writing to the elect exiles. And we can note a significant theme in 1 Peter is that theme of exile, appropriating the idea of Israel in exile in Babylon for Christians, to the point where he will write, She who is in Babylon greets you, as the greeting in 1 Peter 5 and verse 13. So his elect exiles, uh, he's establishing a posture he's going to maintain throughout the letter, that Christians are in an exile or sojourn. And it really informs how Peter expects Christians to see one another in, in that light. Christians are in sojourn, or exile, refugees if you'd like, as people who cannot return to their former lives, because we cannot conform to our environment. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in, in Romans 12 too. In Romans 6, 20-21, we are ashamed of the things we have done in the past, and we were inheriting death. And that we've been transferred into the, the kingdom of the love of his of the Son, in Colossians 1 and verse 13. Son of his love, excuse me. Christians who live in exile are a people whose loyalties are elsewhere, in the kingdom of heaven, and not with those among whom they live. And they don't intend to return to their former lives before Christ. That's why Philippians 3, 20 and 21, this idea that uh, we wait a Savior from heaven, that our citizenship is there. And so the beginning of 1 Peter, in verses 3 through 9, as he gets into his theme, Peter opens with encouragement for Christians who endure trial. And he emphasizes the hope of resurrection and the wealth that comes from a purified faith. And this is something very important. That as Christians, we do well to remember and to ground ourselves in this confidence of the hope of our salvation. And this is very acute, though, when you're undergoing trial. 
In fact, we need to understand trials and difficulties when they come upon us, as also James will remind us in the first chapter, verses 2 through 4, that they have value in our faith, that when we endure them, we grow in our character uh, and become as God would have us to become, to be purified as through fire. And this confidence is of very great importance if we're going to endure as exiles. And he continues in verses 10 through 12 that the confidence we can have in the gospel and its value, and that's a strong comfort for us. We can feel out of place very easily, and it's important to be able to see that the people of God who came before us speak to us in the scriptures, and that in fact angels yearn to look into the things that have been revealed to us in the gospel. And they provide a sense of community and continuity with those who have come before us. And from that, he'll turn in verses 13 and 17 to talk about how Christians, as sojourners exiles, are to be holy as God is holy, to remember that God judges without partiality, to conduct themselves with fear. So yes, we have this great comfort and hope, but there's this core principle that Peter wants to, to, to say, and he's also going to say in chapter 2, okay, you are this exile people, you are the separate people, God is, is going to see you through the trials, but you need to be holy as he is holy. That's how we should be known, as in holy lives and reverent toward God. We need to be, in Matthew five thirteen through 16, lights of the world, a city set on the hill. It would be very easy for Christians to withdraw into some kind of smug arrogance, to be very confident of our salvation because God has chosen us. This is the very trap Israel fell into. And that is why uh, we are need to see ourselves as exiles and sojourners from the world, very much unlike the people around us in that sense, but never go so far as to forget that God loves them as well as us and would have them uh, be saved like we are, First Timothy 2 and verse 4. And that if we participate in sin as they do, we are going to fall under the same condemnation. And that is why the Christian life must manifest a Christian witness, that Jesus is Lord, embodied in how we live, not just in what we say. And it's within an exhortation to recognize the great value of the redemptive blood of Jesus and the eternal quality and duration of the word of God and the gospel that Peter does say here in 1 Peter 1.22 so that Christians are to love one another in 1 Peter 1.18-25. Uh, it's important for these ex-pagans to understand that you can't really return to the life you lived beforehand from which you've been redeemed because the value of Christ's blood is far greater than all those things that they had done in the past. It's also important as a general note in understanding First Peter throughout our conversation that as ex-pagans, this persecution thing is a very new experience for them. It's old hat to Peter and his fellow Jewish Christians. They've been persecuted for their religious beliefs for hundreds of years. But this was not something pagans would have been used to. And so they'd never endured it before, and so they would find it stunning, shocking, difficult to imagine. Because it just hadn't happened, because when they had been pagans, they would have just acculturated another god into their system, uh, wouldn't have problems serving another god, would be a completely different scenario than the one they now were enduring as Christians. And so that's why Peter is highlighting these very important things in the beginning of the letter. That uh, Jesus and his blood are very precious and pure, uh, and, and how important it is to endure through trial and to be holy. But he ends this section here going back to Isaiah's message. That the grass of the field will, will burn up, but that the will of the Lord, the word of the Lord endures forever. It's exactly what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40 to the exiles who would go to Babylon. And so we should see that continuity there. 
that just as he had to encourage them in, in exile, that the word of God endures forever and do not lose heart, so he must encourage the Christians. Uh, Peter must encourage the Christians of the first century. So those persecuting forces will not endure forever. The cultural attitudes they endure will not remain forever, but the gospel will endure forever. And so this is where he puts this exhortation. And the exhortation is not just to love one another and to do so fervently, but it's because they have purified their souls by obedience to the faith, to the truth, ace, unto, in Greek, unhypocritical love of the brethren. Uh, love without that idea there of uh, sincere is unhypocritical. And so we see also a directional understanding for the Christian. What, to what end are we purified uh, by our obedience to the truth. What's the end goal here? That's an important thing. We think about, well, we need to do all these holy and righteous things. Sure, but to what end? Just to obtain heaven? Well, Peter says here, it's to love one another without hypocrisy. And so, all of this is to show that hope, salvation, holiness, and redemption are all very important. These are the fundamental things that are going to keep these Christians going. That's how they're going to live as exiles for Jesus and the kingdom in this land. And he's providing the structure for them to endure it. The hope of the resurrection, the value and power of the gospel and redemption, that, this, this encouragement and strength he's given. And he's contextualizing their trials as crucibles in which their faith will be made pure and holy. And so he's setting forth the posture Christians are supposed to have toward those outside. And we're going to see that as the letter continues. That we are to be holy in the fear of God. That's how we're going to be seen in, in, in the community. And that's how we need to live in the community. But why? Why are we doing that? Well, because we need to turn inward and love each other. That's our posture inwardly. Toward one another is love. Now this conception is very radical to us. Because it's out of place in what is past the American religious landscape. Uh, for generations, Christianity has maintained a strong social prestige. It was assumed that you would be at least nominally associated with a Christian church or denomination. In some, in some parts of the country, that's still that way. And most disputations in, for many years were among different understandings of Christianity, where doctrinal disputations were frequent because you theoretically at least agreed on the basics. Now, in that kind of environment, social pressures drove a type of membership in a congregation that would emphasize uh, an importance of being there and professing Jesus. You know, if that it was social pressure that meant a lot of people were at church, not actual belief. And that attitude very easily morphed into what could be considered a country club understanding of the church. That is a membership in a voluntary organization in which if you gave your money, it guaranteed membership benefits. That the group validated its existence and its standing and its salvation uh, by maintaining certain dogmatic principles. That as long as we did certain things and did not do certain things as a group, that meant we were in the in-group and anybody who differed with us were the out-group. And there was very little, if any, perceived conflict between participation in religious organizations of that sort and full participation in, Mer in American culture. Now, that was, for most people, the past, because now we're living in a time uh, that many have apocalyptically prophesied for years. But it's actually here now that Christianity, even when it's tolerated, is increasingly being seen as no longer a societal good. But in fact, in many places, it's seen as a stumbling block, something that is antagonistic toward cultural harmony and consensus. And so, because we are 
in this what seems to us new world, it's not really a new world though, because we come back to what Peter is saying, because that's the world in which early Christians lived. That we are exiles and sojourners. We're not going to be completely comprehensible to our fellow man who lives in the world, even if we're going to share a lot in common in terms of of background and heritage in a worldly sense. We're going to receive indifference or antagonism from those who are outside. And toward them, we need to manifest holiness and the fear of God. But toward one another, we must love unhypocritically, to recognize that the people who assemble, the church, is our fellow people, and that what we share as the church is far more precious than anything that might divide us, which is a core message of Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, the idea that Christ has broken down the barrier that separated you from Gentile and in himself killed the hostility, making all into one man. The idea that there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free in Galatians 3.28 is the idea that we are one in Christ Jesus, that what we share in Jesus is far more important than what would divide us in the world. And the fact is, everything else is going to fade. Nothing else is going to stand. All nation states, all other form associations are going to be dissolved. The only people we're going to have in the end are the fellow people of God. And that is why we are to love them as God has loved us in Christ. 1 John 4, 7-21. And absolutely the message that Peter is trying to communicate to us here. And that is why this church can no longer suffer to be seen as this country club type of social organization with membership perks. But instead must actually reflect the community of the people of God. The body of Christ. A place where Christians love each other and support each other since they cannot rely on anyone else. Even people who may used to have been family. Even people with whom they had been friendly earlier. Because of their greater loyalty to Jesus and the fact that that loyalty to Jesus is increasingly leading to antagonism in culture and in society. But we can only have the church be that way when we develop our posture and have this realization. To no longer consider brotherly love as a nice add-on to the faith, that's primarily about holiness and righteousness. The idea that people think of following Jesus, they think of following certain rules and dictates, that in fact all of those rules and dictates are to lead us to love, that it's as much a command as all the rest of these things, and in fact is the ultimate goal of these commands. We are to live holy and manifest the fruit of the Spirit so as to love one another and in the body of Christ glorify God who established it and build it up. That's what Peter's trying to get up communicated in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now we talked about the outward versus inward posture, and he expands upon that in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. That as sojourners and exiles, Peter would have Christians abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against the soul, so that when the Gentiles speak of them as evildoers, they're going to have to glorify God on the final day because of the good works and lives of Christians in verses 11 and 12. Included in these good works is obedience to civil authority appointed by God to maintain law and order. That God's will for us as Christians is to silence the foolish of ignorant, excuse me, the ignorance of foolish men uh, by living as free, not to cover up evil, but to live as servants of God. In verses 13 through 16. And then we have this series of pithy statements. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In verse 17. So here, Peter is taking it for granted that Christians are going to suffer opposition from Gentiles. And while there are times where earthly authorities will stand for justice, there's no guarantee of that. Now, he doesn't expect Christians to take down the government. 
He expects them to obey the government, to silence the ignorance of the foolish, uh, who would presume that their loyalty to Christ means such complete disloyalty to the current ruling authorities that they're trying to undermine them. Now, this absolutely happens when Christians abstain from fleshly lust to subject themselves to the earthly authorities and live as free people to serve God. But notice that it cannot happen effectively if Christians do not love the brotherhood and do not put their trust in the way God intends to work in the world. Now, both 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 2 uh, demonstrates uh, that this, there's this posture that we have toward those without versus those within. To those without, we do good. We show honor, we manifest holiness, we have same from fleshly lusts. Now, it doesn't mean that when we come inside, we can all of a sudden take off all of that, and we can be dishonorable and do evil and become lechers and, and lascivious people. Absolutely not. We still need to maintain holiness. But the impetus is to love each other, not to judge each other, not to castigate each other, not to give each other the side eye, but to truly love each other. And this requires us as Christians to put the brotherhood first in terms of honor and preference. So in Romans 12, 9 and 10, Paul says to excel in loving and showing honor to one another, to prefer one another in love. Now it's very easy for the people of God to get distracted from loving each other by putting their efforts and hope into other causes however relatively good compared to the ultimate good in Christ. And unfortunately, so many have put so much effort into those other causes that they have divided the body of Christ in the process. And that is terribly shameful. In the name of politics, the name of race, in the name of works, in the name of, of doing it my way, etc., etc., etc. And that is all terribly awful and will not be tolerated well in the Day of Judgment. We need to remember, as Christians, that there's no salvation in the legislation process. There's no salvation in political machination. There's no salvation in benevolent institutions or non-governmental organizations or anything like that. However good those causes are, they are secondary to the ultimate cause, the salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ in Acts 4.12. That the only sanctified body is the church in Ephesians 5.22-32. And thus we must manifest an all-important priority of the people of God by making them the all-important priority in our lives. After all, if we're going to share in the resurrection of life with them, shouldn't they be important to us now? Who among us wants to be guilty of causing division and separation of the body of Christ about various worldly ideas and issues and disagreements and divisions about issues that are going to perish like grass and day of resurrection? All that stuff's going to be torn away and we're going to be left to ask ourselves... We divided over that? We alienated? We become alienated from one another because of this? There's no brethren. Nothing going on right now on earth is important enough to divide us if we maintain the shared faith in Christ. And thus we must ask us, are we fully committed to loving the brotherhood? Are we willing to make each other the priority in our lives? When Peter gets to chapter 4, his emphasis shifts a little bit. In the beginning of verse 7, he declares, The end of all things is at hand. And so he's setting forth the implications of the upcoming eschaton, the upcoming end of time. And really what Peter is helping us do is to answer the question, If we were completely convinced and knew for certain that Jesus was going to return 
at a certain day and time in the very near future, let's say in two years, what would we change in our lives? In verse 7, he says we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. And that speaks to not being intoxicated by anything in the world. Absolutely. And in our modern culture, it really speaks more toward avoiding distractions. In fact, we have so many different distractions uh, that we can no longer truly focus. We're so used to getting so many inputs from the smartphone and from other people and from the computer that it's really hard for us to spend any amount of time focusing on an individual subject. But then in verse 8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So again, love is highly emphasized primary. And not just any love, love one another. It also facilitates the forgiveness of sins, because God is love, and God is pleased when we reflect Him in love as He has loved us. 1 John 4, 8. He then says that we should show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And that's part of the means by which we demonstrate love, and that's through table fellowship. Because in life, we share meals and time with those whom we love. And that truly loving relationships can only be built when we associate outside of the assembly as well as in it. And hospitality opens the door and also the vulnerability required to foster those kind of relationships. And even beyond that, the days may come when we must rely on each other more than we do now. And if we need a place to lodge, where else are we going to be able to turn to? If we are being truly persecuted and marginalized. He concludes this section in verses 10 and 11 by establishing that we should use God's gifts that he has given us to serve others, realizing that God has blessed us all with gifts, various kinds, and that we're to use them to serve one another. It's another way of manifesting love. He specifically mentioned speakers as speaking oracles of God and those serving as serving to the strength that God supplies. And so, we return to our question. We know that Jesus is coming back, right? All good Christians know the answer to that. We're aware of what Jesus said in Matthew 25, and what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, what Peter's going to say in 2 Peter 3, that Jesus could return at any time and will come as a thief in the night. But do we really know that? Has that really sunk in deep? Have we grappled with the reality and the implications of what that means for how we are to think, feel, and act. Are we really living as Jesus, if, as if Jesus might come back at any time? Now, how much differently would we decide to live our lives and change our priorities if we were certain that Jesus is going to come back very soon, like in two years? Would we not change everything? Would we not put much more focus on building up the kingdom of one another? And would we not intuitively understand that our lives would follow the pattern that Peter establishes here in 1 Peter chapter 4? And to note that of all the things going on, above all things, we are to be fervent in our love for one another. And again, we all know that we're to love one another, right? We know that. We're mentally aware of that fact. But has that knowledge sunk deeply into our hearts and minds to really inform how we think, feel, and act? If we're really going to love one another as God would have us, we're going to have to prioritize one another and to prioritize the development of that love. Again, this upcoming end reminds us of what is really important because everything else is as the grass of the field. It's going to burn. It may not burn in our lifetimes, but the day is going to come when it will burn. 
Our career field and our development in the career will be as grass and it will not endure. Social media and websites will perish. The great technological fads of the day will be no more. All the organizations built in the world will be destroyed. Every nation state will crumble. The word of the Lord and the people of God endure forever. And so what Peter's doing is calling us to recognize what is eternal in our lives from what is transient. What is of the world from what is of God. And above all things, to realize that loving one another is one of our highest callings. And so we must ask, who is our church? Who are the people to whom we tr- turn when we need things? Who are the people we trust? Who are the ones we depend upon? Who are the people we reckon as our support system? That's our church. We know who it should be. It should be our fellow people of God. Because they're the ones who are going to endure. If difficulties come upon us as Christians and we are seen as exiles and sojourners and freaks by everybody, are we going to have anyone to turn to? Or are we going to find ourselves all of a sudden thrown together as in a lifeboat and having to somehow muddle through together because we haven't spent the time investing in one another developing those relationships, encouraging one another, uh, so as to make this work in an effective way. Well, the people who we have the deepest intimate fellowship with be sharing in the resurrection of life with us. Now, if not, we're striving to that same end with and for them, that, that to encourage them to become part of the people of God. It's not as if everybody we have connections with must be in the church. We must not limit ourselves entirely. But we need to be aware that we need to give preference and priority to the people of God. And what is hindering us from getting to better know one, serve one another? Those among whom we plan to share the resurrection of life. And will we make loving the people of God a high enough priority in our lives? So as to glorify God? Or are we going to continue to be distracted by the temptations of the world? And the the temptation of the world can be as much as things on the internet, as much as the political process, or the fate of a particular nation state, or benevolent organizations uh, and causes, and so on and so forth. As we've seen, as Peter writes to the Christians of Asia Minor about living in exile, he's continually exhorting them to love one another. Hope and comfort are important. Holiness and reverence are very necessary. But they're to lead to fervent love for one another in 1 Peter 1, 1-25. We must honor all people, fear God and honor the emperor in chapter 2, verse 11-17. But we must main, love the brotherhood and maintain our greatest loyalty to them and to the kingdom we share in Jesus. The end of all things is his hand, as Peter warned us in chapter 4, verses 7-11. through 11. We must resist the distractions of the world. We need to show hospitality to one another. And serve each other. But above all things, we must fervently love one another. We must ask ourselves, what defines us as Christians? The sign out front of a building? Well, anybody can make a sign. A set of propositional truths? Well, that might be a great start, but to what end? Insisting on adhering to a certain set of beliefs? Well, agreement is on what is true is absolutely fundamental, but to what end? Smug confidence in being the in-group as defined by not being part of the out-groups? Well, as Peter warned us, God is impartial and he judges us by what we do. Moral striving unto holiness. Well, that's great, but it's insufficient. And in the end, we return to as we, at where we began. All men will know that we are his disciples if 
we have love for one another. Our love for one another must include a love of truth because we are in Jesus and he is the truth in John 14:6. Our love for one another is not exclusive of the faith delivered once for all the saints or the holiness without which we will not see the Lord. But all of those things, as Paul said, are vain and mean nothing without love in 1 Corinthians 13. True love for one another encompasses all these things. Therefore, our highest striving ought to be to love one another fervently. So as sojourners and exiles, may we prove loyal to one another prioritizing one another, and recognizing that for good reason we are to fervently love one another above all things, so that we may share together in the resurrection of life. We're again so glad that you've joined us. Hope you've been benefited by this. We've spoken much about this idea of Christians as exile this year. We encourage you to perhaps consider other conversations we've had on the issue. Maybe you'd like to read some more information uh, about spiritual things or learn more about us as a Venice Church of Christ. We encourage you to look us up online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or on social media for these things. Uh, you also can contact me uh, personally at my website, DeVerboVitae.com, www.DeVerboVitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.